and welcome again to another exciting edition of Lost in Science across Australia on the Community Radio Network and coming through some sort of device into your ears right this very minute as well, no doubt. And we have half an hour of science for you as usual and also as usual on the show. We have Claire. What have you brought in for us this week, Claire? Well, hello, Stu. Um, I've got another guest because I am. I just love bringing the scientists to the science enthusiasts. Um, so this week on the show we have Dr. Elodie Campras, who is an ecologist and also um, loves citizen science, just like the rest of us do. I know we do here at Lost in Science, but Elodie, you know, she's also made it her day job to create incredible citizen science projects. And she's going to talk to us about one that she has just launched, all about spider crabs. Giant spider crabs, I think they're called. <laughs> Amazing. Do you know these crabs? That they sort of like congregate in really yeah, large in Port numbers. Port Phillip Bay or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. They live yep. in Port Phillip Bay. Spider crabs, spider crabs, grab whatever are spider grabs. <laughs> yeah, that's the lesser known <laughs> uh, theme tune to yeah, yeah. for spider crabs. Absolutely. Um, so even though we and we there, there are these incredible events where they aggregate in really large numbers, we don't know much about them. So she's launched this citizen science project to uh, track where they are at what time, but also importantly, because, you know, it's science, so uh, no results is also a a result, um, where they're not. So everyone can be involved. Uh, If you don't see a spider crab, that is a result too, and they want to know. I haven't seen a spider crab lately, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Log it. I'll log that straight away as soon as, as soon as we're finished recording. And Chris, what have you brought in for us this week? Well, I'm not bringing in a, another science scientist to talk, but um, I'm talking about the, uh, my own kind of area of expertise of science, I suppose, really. Um, I am from long ago a particle physicist. And, you know, every few months I'm obligated to cover a particle physics story when there's reports of a new discovery. Yeah, it's in that it's in that contract that you signed, right? When you yeah. became a particle <laughs> physicist. What was that about? What was that about? Anyway, um, but yeah, this time what they found is a discrepancy between a measurement of the mass of the W boson and the calculation of that mass using the standard model. So of course I have to talk about what this all means. You know what the standard model is, what a boson is, and does this actually mean anything? Um, look, this story is actually quite interesting in a way, um, the way the measurement was made is interesting and the theoretical value is kind of significant and how robust each of those things are. But, um, look, if you really want some spoilers ahead of time, it's going to be the same as any of these stories. (laughs) Like there's an interesting experiment. It could be new physics, but we need more data. And even if it's new physics, we don't really know what that physics would be anyway, because we don't have enough information. So, but it's still exciting. Um, I did. I did see a report that said it's it's going to throw out the standard model of physics. So I'm really excited yeah. to hear what you've got to say about that. I Chris. love how everyone pretends to get excited about this stuff. It's great. <laughs> well, please stay tuned and pretend to get excited about that story later in the show. I have an unorthodox solution. A fantastic voyage, if you will. Hey. <laughs> Three scientists will be shrunk to microscopic size. Well, we have had a little trouble finding volunteers. <laughs> Lost in science. 
So the standard model of particle physics is it's basically our current best theory for how the universe works at the smaller scales. What essentially is it plugs in all nine fundamental particles, describes their interactions using quantum field theory, throws in a Higgs boson and a bunch of other parameters just to make it all kind of fit with experiments. So it's kind of this messy and cobbled together thing and no one seriously believes it's the final theory. Um, for some really obvious things, there's a bunch of stuff it doesn't explain, like, oh, gravity. Mm. You know, pretty major one. You'd think that's to leave a, out. That's a, that's a big one. It's pretty heavy. Oh, depends on um, where you are. Also, It's, it's quite massive, in fact. Well, it, it's not itself massive. Let's <laughs> not get into that. What is massive, though, also not in the in standard model, is dark matter and dark energy. Um, and at the, if you just want to go down to the particle level itself, things like the, um, the masses of neutrinos. So in the standard model, neutrinos have zero mass, but from, you know, recent results indicate that they have a mass that's greater than zero. Um, so yeah, look, we know the standard model is incomplete, but uh, look, it is also one of the most precisely measured theories ever. And this is past the reason why physicists seem so protective of it. It's not that we, you know, love it, and you know, for, for certain reasons, it just it does a really, really good job. And so, you know, it kind of sets a high bar for overturning it. So sometimes you see people come along and say, oh, the standard model is wrong. Listen to me. I think it's wrong. So I believe my theory instead. And like, we already know that. Um, so you have to actually have something that's almost the same as the standard model in just about every experiment that's ever been done. Why is it so important to have the standard model if we know that it's flawed and we know that it's wrong? What is the what is the thing that it that it does um, for the physics of the time and our understanding? It basically explains every experiment, just about every experiment we do with particles. Like it's our understanding of how they work. It's our best guess at how they work. Um, so it kind of indicates that if there's anything beyond the standard model, it's got to at least work in some of the same ways as the standard model does. You know, it's um, before the standard model came along, we didn't understand how the forces worked between things. We didn't understand what were fundamental particles, what were just other particles, because, you know, they joined together and make other particles. We didn't know which ones were the real ones, which ones were just composite particles. It explains all of that. And it's like I said, it's very powerful at making predictions. Um, yeah. So it is, it is extremely precise. Um, but yeah, it, it agrees just about every experiment, which is why we try to find experiments that give a deviation from the standard model. And so the latest one is a measurement of the mass of the W boson by the CDF collaboration. They got a result that was slightly higher than that predicted by the theory. Um, now, a few things we should talk about here, obviously, like what is a W boson? And what is the CDF? Exactly. Well, let's do the W boson first. Um, that um, The W stands for weak. And so the W bosons, they are one of the particles that mediate the weak nuclear force. It'd just um, be so much better if it was like wonderful. The wonderful boson. Look, I wouldn't put it past someone to have put it that, but yeah, it's, it's W for weak because it's the weak nuclear force. It's actually two particles. It's like there's a, a positively charged W and a negatively charged W. Uh, and then accompanying them, there is a Z boson, which has zero charge. So yeah, at the, the W boson is fairly important for the weak nuclear force. And at the most basic level, its mass is determined by only two factors, the, the strength of the weak nuclear force itself and the strength of the Higgs field, which um, it interacts with. And that's what, how it gets its mass. 
So if you know those values from other experiments that you've done, it's a pretty good test of whether the model is right. And so that's why they do experiments like this one. Um, so this is the CDF experiment uh, is, or in fact was, the collider detector at Fermilab. Um, I say was because one of the notable things about this experiment is that it finished over a decade ago. Um, but they've been doing their homework in the years since. So have they just been crunching the numbers they got from the experiments they did a decade ago? Yeah, essentially, essentially. Wow, that's that's kind of amazing. Yeah, like they were really trying to do a good job. So yeah, this is um, this is a device that was attached to a particle accelerator called the Tevatron. Um, so that collect it, this uh, the CDF experiment detected collisions and tried to work out what they were. Uh, and the Tevatron and all the experiments attached to it were shut down in 2011. And all the parts have since been kind of reused and recycled. Um, but yeah, they've been crunching the data. So they have found in the data about 4 million events that correspond to the creation and decay of W bosons. And they carefully analyzed them over these intervening years, trying to get it as precise as possible, trying to remove any uncertainties, trying to really understand how the accelerator and the detector worked. They even did things like apparently um, use records of cosmic rays to kind of get a very precise um, map of the detector's layout down to like a micron of measurement of the layout of the detector so they could fully understand exactly how it's working and model it completely. Um, and they kept their team blinded as well. So the people doing the, the analyzation, analyzation, the analysis, they, they were basically unaware of the results um, so that there would not be any human bias. So they basically got them to do the calculations without looking at the numbers they got. Not really sure how that works, but that's what they did. Um, they opened the envelope in November 2020, um, got a big surprise, and then spent until now checking their work again. That's how dedicated they were to getting this right. So yeah, the result they, the result they got for the W boson mass was 80,433.5 plus or minus 9.4 mega electron volts, which is how we measure masses of subatomic particles. Um, the theoretical prediction was 80,357 plus or minus 6 mega electron volts. So there's a difference there of 76 MeV, uh, which is like a difference of about one part in a thousand. Um, which doesn't sound much, but it's it's enough. It's a statistically significant result. So it's, it's something to shout about, even if it's, you know, so apparently so small. Um, I may have mentioned earlier how precise the standard model is, that, you know, when we get something, a difference like one part in a thousand, we go, wow, this is huge. Incredibly wrong. It's so different. <laughs> But like at the statistical level, it's what they call a seven sigma result, meaning it has a one in 800 billion probability of being due to chance alone. So, you know, they're pretty certain that it wasn't just some sort of random thing that happened, um, but there could be other mistakes with it. So they, you know, basically someone else needs to replicate this result. Um, apparently the Large Hadron Collider in Switzerland um, has a lot of similar data and so people there have to then try and comb through that and trying to replicate the result. Um, one of the things about this, apart from disagreeing with the, the theoretical prediction, it also disagrees with a number of previous experiments. And that's kind of a bit harder to explain. So you really need to check that it is correct. Right. And um, will it take another 10 years to verify 
Or have they already done the experiments and they just it's going to take them ten years to get through? Look, maybe maybe not and a half. Uh, look, this is an interesting question. I guess it depends. I mean, they could probably learn from the way this one was done, and you know, maybe you know use a lot of the same techniques. Um, they could also perhaps got better data with the other ones. Might be able to shortcut a little bit. Um, just see this, the amount of data with these experiments, the amount of data they generate itself is kind of a thing that slows you down really. And as technology improves, like computing power improves and even like storage space for the amount of data involved, you know, as, as that improves, the calculations do get quicker to do. So yeah, I don't think it'll take another, another 10 years really, but, um, you know, maybe it's also caused some people to step, sit up and say, oh, we need to start working on it now hope they're already working on it but i'd actually don't know um what we can predict though is a bunch of theoretical physicists um who basically just have a pad and paper will um i guess these people like i guess it's unkindly called ambulance chasers um so whenever there's some new anomaly in particle physics they come up with a bunch of theories to explain the new anomaly and you know rush out some papers to try and be the first to, to publish something about it um you know, that's kind of like a really easy game to play. It doesn't really tell you anything. Um, because this, all this has really got, we've basically got a discrepancy. Um, it means there probably is something new going on. There's probably some new particles to be discovered somewhere. But it doesn't tell you what they are or anything like that. So it's fairly easy to come up with a new theory that might give you this slight mass difference. But to actually have something that's significant that people are going to go chasing, it's kind of got to have more justification than that. So kind of ideally what you want is like a theory or some theories that people are already kind of fond of for other reasons and this will give you an idea of some parameters in that theory maybe where to look for the new particles what masses they might have um so it's not itself an explanation of what we might find but it gives you a clue that there is something to find um the fact that it is um a measurable result even though it's very small should mean that anything new hopefully isn't too far off our capabilities of our experiments but yeah, for the moment, it's just an anomaly on top of the other anomalies we have. Um, and assuming these experiments are verified and repeated, it just gives us hope that we'll find something more definitive soon. Um, and, you know, until then, you're just going to have, I guess what we are generating is new newspaper headlines. And that's fairly important itself. Congratulations on your discovery, which may well prove to be among the most significant in the history of science. I cannot accept half-baked theories that sell newspapers. I'm, I'm a scientist. Who are you who are so wise in the ways of science? A most distinguished scientist whose name we know, even in the wild of Transylvania. Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you are listening to Lost in Science. Have you ever seen a spider crab? If you live down south in Victoria or further south, if you've swum in Port Phillip Bay, chances are you may have. And, well, there is now a new citizen science project by Deakin University that collects data on spider crabs. And so if you see them, then we need your help. Now, to talk us through this incredible species and how to become involved in the citizen science project, we have with us this week, Dr. Elodie Campras. Welcome to Lost in Science. Thanks, Claire. Thanks for having me. It's always a great pleasure to chat to you. Um, so, Elodie, spider crabs, 
Tell us about them. What do they look like? Where do they live? Why are they so interesting? Yeah, so spider crabs are a very cool species. That's like the biggest spider crab we have around. So they have this 10 with legs and the triangular body and they sort of crawl along the substrate. They're they're orange, uh, but sometimes can get a bit of algae on them and sponges to camouflage. Um, so, yeah, the, the, the interesting thing about them is that they form very big aggregations, um, especially in wintertime, for example, in Port Phillip Bay, but there are also aggregations uh, down in, in Tasmania. Um, so they, they actually gather en masse to molds. So they're arthropods, so these animals with jointed legs like, you know, insects and other crustaceans. So in order to grow bigger, they actually need to molt and get rid of their, their shells and their carapace. So um, while they do that, they're actually soft and they're vulnerable to predators, um, mm. hungry rays and uh, little sharks like Port Jackson sharks or even mm. seals just love munching on a soft crab. So <laughs> Soft shell crab. Re- yes, exactly. So the reasons that the reason why they uh, aggregate in this um Winter events is because they seek protections in numbers. So when you have a whole bunch of mates with you, you're less likely to be eaten. So that's the, the whole purpose of the aggregations. That's certainly my approach when I'm going swimming in, you know, shark-infested waters or something like that. You know, you make yourself part of a larger group of people so you don't get picked off. Um, As you do. So, so you're um, so. How, how big are they in general? Are we talking like small, tiny little crabs like you might see on the rocky shore or are they quite quite big? So a bit bigger than that. Usually their size is about the size of a human hand or a little bigger. And is that the, is that the body or the body and the legs? Yeah, the body. Yeah. Oh, right. And then their, their legs would sort of, you know, come out quite far as well, make them yeah. quite a bit. A bit bigger. So quite a sight to behold. And when you say they aggregate in large numbers, what are we talking here? Like, you know, 50 at a time or more? Oh, many more. So we don't have exact numbers and, and that's part of the problem. There's there's a lot that we don't know about these phytocrabs, believe it or not. So despite the fact that they'll they are world famous and they've been pictures, pictured locally and internationally in documentaries like BBC Blue Planet 2, we really don't know much about them. So there's actually not been any sort of standardised count of them during aggregations or even in the population. So we know that thousands and thousands of them um, gather in this natural phenomenon, but we just don't know how many exactly. And does it happen every year? Do they molt every year? Yes, they do. Um, so the aggregations, the, the main ones that I guess attract the most people are the ones that are happening, uh, for example, right here and Blegar appears on the Mornington Peninsula. But we do have anecdotal evidence that they actually gather in various uh, places in Port Phillip Bay and outside of Victoria. Uh, and we don't really know what sort of triggers this aggregation and what kind of sites how they choose the sites that they mm. choose. That was going to be my next question. Do they like do they like sandy bottom sites? Do they prefer being sort of like out a little bit further? Like if you went for a swim in Port Phillip Bay, would you stumble upon them? Yeah, you could. You could. So um, 
again, the, the main aggregations are the ones that sort of, you know, gets the most attention. And yes, it's usually under on the peers, so it's sandy flat bottom, uh, but that's why we're interested in getting citizen scientists on board so that we actually get a more complete picture or where these spider crabs like to hang out and like to aggregate. Well, that was going to be my next question. So, um, yeah, tell us about the, your citizen science project that you've been working on. Yeah, so um, the project is called Spider Crab Watch. That's a, an iNaturalist project. So iNaturalist is a platform for citizen scientists uh, to log information. So that's actually a very cool platform, not just for spider crabs, but for about anything alive that you might come across. So, you know, if you come across a tree that you think is interesting, you can take a picture of it, upload it on iNaturalist, and then experts will weigh in and sort of tell you what it is. So and mm. when enough people have confirmed that, yes, this is the species, then we're confident that, yes, it has been identified correctly. So that's the way iNaturalist works in general. But um, in our project, Spider Crab Watch, we're really interested in people letting us know when and where they see spider crabs or spider crab molds so that the shells mm. that they leave behind after their molting event. But we're also actually interested in knowing when people don't see spider crabs. And that might seem a bit, you know, a, a bit um, of a question why we're interested in this data. But if we're trying to figure out where the spider crabs like to hang out and, and, and where they like to aggregate, if we only know when and where they found, we really only have half of the story. So, yes, they're found on sandy flat bottoms, but what about seagrass? What about rocky reefs? Do they mm -hmm. like it there? So that's why it's important that um, we get also sightings from people that don't see them. So, for example, you go on a lovely snorkel somewhere in the bay or, you know, outside the bay as well, in other areas where they like to hang out. And, uh, yeah, you do a lovely snorkel or a dive, you don't come across them. Uh, it takes a few minutes to just let us know that was the time, that was the date, that was the location, and I didn't see them. Even people that are, you know, walking on the piers, for example, and see the bottom, they spend their, their you know, their time there, they might be fishing, they might be sightseeing, uh, and they can also tell us, okay, well, I've spent an hour here and I haven't seen any spider crabs. So that's also uh, interesting data. Now we are interested when people actually see the spider crabs, uh, if they see them from the surface, they have their phone, they can snap photos. Yeah. If they see them on the water, they have a camera or GoPro, then they can also snap images. And that's great information for us. But photos aren't essential to log sighting. So if people want to let us know that they've seen those spider crabs and they don't have photos, that's fine too. They can log a sighting. Right. So that sounds easy. Just jump on iNaturalist and uh, answer a couple of questions. Did you see them? Didn't you see them? <laughs> Exactly. So easy to be able to contribute to, um, you know, wider scientific knowledge there. Um, speaking of wider scientific knowledge, what do you hope will be the outcome of this citizen science project? Yeah, so at this point, as I mentioned earlier, there's just so little that we know about this species that it's really gaining that knowledge and, and you know, getting more understanding of spider crab ecology and understanding the aggregations so we can safeguard them into the future. And you mentioned that 
spider crabs aggregate during the winter. Um, so you're doing a call out now, I guess, coming into winter. Um, how long do people have, I guess, to sort of um, contribute? Do you have sort of a season? So that's a very good question. So the main aggregations that we know of usually happen anytime in May or June, but they're quite unpredictable in, in what exactly, what dates exactly within that window the spider crabs are going to be found. And sometimes it can last a few days and sometimes it can last a few weeks. And again, we don't, we don't really know why. But we also have anecdotal evidence that they aggregate at other times as well. So potentially any time of year, uh, anywhere in the bay or other other areas where the spider crabs are found, they could be coming, people can be coming across aggregations as well. So it's really about looking out for them and not just in the usual places that we know of, for example, Ryan Morning. Uh, Ryan Lergory, it's also looking out in different habitats and, and getting people that are out there on the water, not necessarily snorkeling or diving, but also boating, kayaking, uh, fishing, you name it. Um, and if people listening to this might be in, you know, outside of the Bay Area, is there a place that they can check maybe a map where they, where they can check, you know, whether... Um, you know, there are spider crabs, in, you know, around in populations that have been that have been sighted before? Certainly. So iNaturalist is actually a great place for that. So if people type great spider crabs, they'll actually see a map of where great spider crabs have been seen around Australia. Oh, brilliant. Um, and also, I mean, you know, our listeners... We love citizen science um, and not everyone has access to uh, the ocean. So you mentioned iNaturalist is a great place to start for citizen science projects. Do you have any have any other, other favourites apart from Spider Crab Watch, of course, Elodie, that you would recommend people can get involved in? Well, actually, yes, the good news is we do have something that people can get involved in anywhere across Australia and indeed anywhere across the world if they want to. Uh, that's coming a bit later after the aggregations have happened, so after sort of this May-June window. We will, we will actually deploy time-lapse cameras at sites where we know that they aggregate. So we're hoping to collect a, a good library of images of spider crabs and these images will be uploaded onto a web portal and then citizen scientists can just log on from anywhere in the world and actually help us count the spider crabs on the images, but also tell us, for example, what kind of predators might be around on the images. So did you see a seal on the image? Did you see a ray on the image? So that's in information we're interested in finding out about as well, sort of a bit later on after the aggregations have happened. So, Elodie, how did this project come about? As I mentioned before, like spider crabs are very iconic species and they've generated a lot of interest in the community that really want to know about them and what they get up to and, you know, information about the aggregation. So um, we did get funding from the Victorian government uh, to be able to implement this program. We're actually doing a mix of traditional science with, with underwater surveys and other components, and, and we have the citizen science program 
uh, to complement it and get more information. So, yeah, and before we finish, I would also like to acknowledge that uh, we're very lucky to be partnering with the Port Phillip Eco Centre and ReefWatch that are helping us design this citizen science program. So really excited to have them on board. And uh, yeah, I want to thank everyone who's been involved so far in logging sightings. And I can't wait to see all the photos and all the sightings that come out of it. I know, me too, and um, get some inside information as to where the spider crabs are because I'd love to jump in the water and, and see them in their big their big population aggregations. Well, Elodie, thank you so much for coming on Lost in Science today and telling us all about Spider Crab Watch. Um, so everyone out there, jump onto iNaturalist and uh, next time you are walking along a pier, you are swimming in uh, the ocean or you're in a kayak or anything, make sure you log whether you see spider crabs or you don't, which is just as important. Fantastic. Thank you for having me. And that is all we have time for this week on Lost in Science. Thank you for joining us in Getting Lost. If you have any questions or suggestions for the team, get in touch with us by email. We are lostinsci at gmail.com. You can send cheap tweets to us at lostinscience1 on Twitter, or you can find us on the ubiquitous Facebook Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne on the land of the Kulin Nation and is broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. You can find a podcast version of the show on 3cr.org.au or you can tune in the way you did this week when we return in our usual time slot to get Lost, Lost in Science! Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.